<clears throat> Good morning. Today is December 5th, and uh, Tay Show today, my, I have a title already figured out. Uh, it's um, not sure how accurate it is, but Zen Practice and the Thinking Mind. And uh, we'll, we'll sort of delve into that and see where we go. Um, I wanted to start out uh, just by trotting out one of the... Uh, little demonstrations, one of the little uh, things that we bring into uh, the workshops. We just had an online workshop yesterday, and uh, <laughs> I found myself in front of the camera without a snow globe in my hand. Um, <clears throat> Got to have that snow globe, but I was forced to mime it, and I'm going to do that again. Um, this is Roshi's favorite uh, uh, metaphor, I guess, uh, for working with the mind. So you take a snow globe, I think everybody knows what that is, you know, a little sort of half dome and it's full of liquid and mixed in there, there's probably a Santa Claus. Our version has a Buddha. And uh, there's a lot of flakes of whatever that represent the snow. And you shake it up and it's swirling around, looks like a blizzard. What we do, what we do in practice is we take the snow globe and we set it down. We just put it down. And when you do, all the swirling flakes gradually come to rest and all of a sudden the blizzard is gone and it's clear. And this is sort of analogous to our being able to see more deeply in the mind when it settles. And the other great thing about this example is that the way it settles is not that we do anything other than leave it alone. It's the same way with thoughts. We don't have to do anything with them. We don't have to counter them. Uh, we don't have to deny them. We don't have to agree with them. We just have to turn back to whatever our method of practice is. It's all that's required. <clears throat> so it is. It's simple. It's very simple. <laughs> Not so easy. Um, Ramana Maharshi, the uh, Indian, the amazing Indian sage of about 100 years ago, well, he died about 70 years ago, said, when there are thoughts, it is distraction. When there are no thoughts, it is meditation. <clears throat> of course, anytime we sit down on the mat, we're going to see both. We're going to have moments uh, where we have no thoughts in the mind. Maybe even just for a split second. When you notice a thought and you turn back, let's say, to the breath, at that moment, the mind is clear. It's just the breath. It may not last long, but it's there. And, of course, no matter how concentrated you are, there are going to be some thoughts coming into the mind. And um, unless you're in a really, really uh, profoundly deep state of absorption. Uh, Roshi is fond of saying the mind is an organ of the body that secretes thoughts. <clears throat> it's just natural. There's nothing wrong with the fact that thoughts come into the mind. So... We all, most of us, have been doing this for a while. We know this. I haven't told you anything new here. Um, but it's so easy to get swept up. And 
the danger that I kind of want to point out um, really got me thinking about about using this as a topic for a for a show is the danger that we'll come to sort of accept it, expect it. You know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking, eh, I try not to, I remember now and then, and, you know, that's just the way it is with me. And uh, so we're there sifting through our thoughts on the mat and never really breaking free, or breaking free very rarely. Uh, it's 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 such a complicated dance, you know. We really need this uh, intense attention, and yet the minute we start criticizing ourselves or physically pushing, which is a very natural thing to do, um, we get in our own way. It's <clears throat> why first principle of good meditation is to relax. But none of us should have any misconception about whether it's easy or not. It's not. It's hard. The uh, Chinese Zen master Da Wei about a thousand years ago wrote a letter to one of his students and he said the obstruction of the path by the mind we can say the obstruction of the way (laughs) thank you Truman the obstruction of the path by the mind and its conceptual discrimination is worse than poisonous snakes and fierce tigers Why? Because poisonous snakes and fierce tigers can still be avoided, whereas intelligent people make the mind's conceptual discrimination their home, so there's never a single moment, whether they're walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, that they're not having dealings with it. As time goes on, unknowing and unawares, they become one piece with it, and not because they want to either, but because since beginningless time they have followed this one little road until it's become set and familiar. Every time we give in to the flow of thoughts, just sort of let the mind drift, uh, sifting through one after another, jumping from stone to stone, so to speak, we reinforce that path. It's just the way the mind works. Whatever we do, we'll do more readily next time. It's the whole truth of habit energy. He says, though they may see thought through it for a moment and wish to detach from it, they still can't. Thus it is said that poisonous snakes and fierce tigers can still be avoided but the mind's conceptual discrimination truly has no place for you to escape. You can find that a little discouraging, (laughs) but it's, it's realistic. It's, it's quite a, 
job that we've set ourselves when we sit down on the mat and attempt to look directly, not through a screen of thoughts. We're going against the stream. We're going against what we've done, uh, as he says, since beginningless time. <clears throat> Nevertheless, none of us is hopeless, and all of us can make progress. But it's just good to be realistic about how uh, difficult it is to break free of thought and how important it is <clears throat> to truly becoming one with anything that we're trying to become one with. Thinking is a habit. And the most intelligent way to work with a habit is to replace it with a healthier habit. In, in our case here, sitting in Zazen, it's with the habit of noticing, the habit of awareness, the habit of returning to our practice. <clears throat> so when a thought comes into the mind, it's a trigger for other thoughts or for, or it can serve as a cue for noticing and returning. I have a friend, name is Sally Schneider, and she writes a blog. She used to be a cookbook author. She has a blog <clears throat> yeah, called The Improvised Life. And she wrote something about habits, changing habits. Kind of nice. I've learned that the pattern I want to change is a habit of behavior or thinking that is etched into my brain from repeating it so much, similar to a path that has been worn by people repeatedly walking on the same place over and over. To change the habit, I slowly, patiently replace it with a new one. That is, practice a new one until it creates a stronger, deeper path than the old one. That requires many, many fails because habit doesn't, habits don't change overnight, just as they weren't created overnight. That's what I always used to hear in AA. Spent a long time getting this way. It's going to take a long time to change. It's not overnight. There's a tennis player, Stan Wawrinka, the second best tennis player from Switzerland, <clears throat> who said, I have a Samuel Beckett quote tattooed on my arm. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. So how do we deal with thoughts? Well, we notice and we let them go. But it might be more accurate to say we notice and we're willing for them to go. Because what we're actually doing is turning our attention back to our method of practice. 
just to say it again, there's no need for us to answer our thoughts or criticize them. In Zen, we don't even label them. That is another method that uh, is used in uh, classical, I guess, mindfulness meditation. You have a thought and you say, okay, thinking about lunch, thinking about sex, thinking about how I'm a worthless human being, whatever little thought road you're going down, you label it. Whatever you do, label or notice, you've, you've created a little bit of space. You've got some distance from the thought. And that's really the problem. The problem that when we're syntonic, when we're, when we're united with our thoughts, when we're just in that mode, uh, we, don't, we won't even notice. And we can go on for minutes, for hours. Some people do that for their entire life. <clears throat> but no one thought is ever going to stay for any length of time. It's always one thought followed by another one. One thought, we react to it, we follow it up with another, and we're just following thoughts. Roshi once in Sashin had a great metaphor. Uh, He says basically what we're doing is we're just trying to drive down the highway. We're just trying to go straight, go directly. But what happens is we get caught up and... We find that we've, it's, say it's, let's say it's a limited access highway. <clears throat> you know, there's no crossroads. It's just exit ramps and entrance ramps. So all of a sudden we find ourselves on the exit ramp. What do we do? Get back on the entrance ramp and get back on the highway. Um, but sometimes the thoughts are thick and we follow them for a long time. And now we've gone off the exit ramp and turned right and we're winding down through town. And when we wake up, we're in a trailer by the river. (laughs) I love that. The difference is, you may be in a trailer by the river, but you can be back on the highway the minute you notice. You don't have to wind your way back through all those streets. You don't have to retrace through all your thoughts. It's just, oh, and you're back. That O and returning is such an important skill to learn. Um, I think it would be a very rare person that doesn't go, oh, shit, or, oh, what kind of a meditator am I? You know, what kind of a Zen student am I? There I go again. This is, and then into all the, this is hopeless. This is hard. How long is this round going to last? All those thoughts follow Uh, just from our noticing that we're thinking, whereas what that noticing should be is a trigger for practice. Someone once said it's it's like doing a push-up. You know, the the act of will to return to whatever the subject is, to whatever we're really trying to do, is like doing a push-up. It's not pleasant, but we get good at it. It gets easier and easier. We develop our mind muscle. Or we could say we develop a habit, the habit of returning. There are, there are two aspects to zazen, to any meditation. <clears throat> there's the awareness or mindfulness aspect, and there's the concentration aspect. For, for thoughts, what we need is first the awareness, and then the ability to concentrate on our method.
And I want to turn to uh, an article from Psychology Today written by a guy named uh, Matthew McKinnon. Let's see if I can see anything about him. Obviously a psychologist. Yeah, he's a doctor. That's all I know. Matthew McKinnon <clears throat> writing in Psychology Today on December 2nd, 2015. And he, he introduces two opposing networks in the brain. This is something that's been studied, and there's been stuff published about this. Some of you, many of you may have heard of these concepts before. It says two opposing networks in the brain, known as the default mode network, or the DMN, and the task positive network, the TPN. It says these two networks are like the on-off position of a light switch in that activation of one by definition inhibits the other. The DMN, the default mode, is labeled default because it represents the mind in a neutral state without a mental or physical focal point. The DMN is the network that allows us to daydream, remember, and imagine. It's unstructured. <clears throat> the TPN, task positive network, on the other hand, becomes active when we have a mental or physical task that we are will willfully engaging with. The TPN is engaged when we focus on external or internal sensations, make plans, or perform complex physical tasks. Then he goes on to sort of lay out which parts of the brain get activated when either one is is in effect. It's interesting, but a little, <clears throat> a little dry and not really important for us here. <clears throat> but he goes on, the details of the DMN and the TPN are less important than is the fact that the DMN and TPN are effortlessly mutually exclusive. The relation between the two is analogous to the relationship between inhalation and exhalation. Despite their intimate nature, the two cannot exist simultaneously. <clears throat> Thus, rather than binding oneself in the mental straitjacket that is battling thought with more thought, you can simply engage fully in a mental or physical activity. <clears throat> I remember Roshi pointing out that no one can be depressed or playing with depressive thoughts when they're eating spaghetti. It's just, it requires too much attention. <clears throat> he says, you only have the mental power to run a single network. Overcoming the DMN is not a matter of pushing through a mental barrier so much as a simple matter of bypassing the barrier altogether. Returning to our light switch analogy, it's important to remember that our attention is fickle and the oscillation between DMN and TPN resembles the frantic flicker of a light switch in the hands of an over-eager toddler. A little description of our Zazen. You will focus intently on your breath, engaging the TPN, the task positive network, only to be interrupted the next second by the return of a ruminative thought as the default mode network takes over 
and the TPN goes dark. <clears throat> As with most things, practice makes perfect, or more perfect. Your practice meditation, you practice meditation to strengthen your TPN so that you might have longer stretches of attentional focus before the DMN interjects with a wayward thought. Your brain evolved to balance the DMN and the TPN. The default mode network was an excellent mental simulator for reviewing or imagining past or future hunts. When the TPN, when the task positive network allowed complete, while the task positive network allowed complete immersion in complex physical or mental tasks. <clears throat> However, in modern cerebral humans, overactivity of the default mode network is associated with depression and anxiety. And there's a footnote to a, some study that has been done to demonstrate that. The practice of mindfulness, or we could say the practice of awareness, word I like better, involves learning how to restore this natural balance to a world that favors the DMN, to a world that favors daydreaming and rumination, perseveration. <clears throat> so there's an extra layer of difficulty when the thoughts we're dealing with have an emotional charge, when they're painful. And that's when things tend to break down. Uh, Joko Beck pointed out that uh, no matter how good we are at handling things that come up, everyone has the point where they're not so good. Uh, something is just too much and we do something that's uh, not helpful. We become unskillful. <clears throat> and that, that right there is our point of practice. It's not a problem that we run into things that are too much for us. The problem is that then we react to it in a way that it doesn't help. It's, it's, we're continually able to take on more and more as we work seriously on ourselves. <laughs> able to be more available in crisis situations. Able to be more present with people who are in extremis. Able to handle all the things that happen in anybody's life. Um, that are cause for sorrow and grief. <clears throat> a lot of times what does happen is that we go into a negative thought spiral. It's a term for this, it's a little acronym, ANTS, Automatic Negative Thoughts. And uh, what, what, what's going on there when we sort of just jump on thinking into some sort of blanket thought like, I'm no good at this, I should quit, um, this always happens to me, why is this happening to me, <clears throat> I hate this, 
what we're doing is we're just finding a not very skillful way to get out of the pain to escape. It's not working very well, but what we're trying to do is turn away from whatever is bothering us. We fail at some task. We don't want to feel the regret of having failed. And so we turn to beating ourselves. Now we're the one beating up. No one else can criticize us because we're doing such a good job. What, what helps instead, when any strong emotion comes, is to return to the body. When you have that pang of, oh no, not again. Whether it's, whether it's severe or even for little things. Get up in the morning and you take a couple steps and, no, oh, your trick knee is flared up again. You know, what, that's, you know, even, even if you're okay with it, you know, eh, you know, I'm breaking down, getting old, <clears throat> what do I expect? It's nevertheless that kind of that, you know, oh, geez, not again. Um, just to feel where that arises, you know, is it a tension in the chest? uncomfortable feeling in the gut, uh, gritting the teeth. What's going on in the body? Because it's always reflected there. And the wonderful thing about doing that is it's not a thought. You're not fighting thought with thought. You're actually turning back. You're actually engaging the task positive network in a very direct way. There's a psychologist. name is Marsha Linehan. She's also a, a student. In fact, I think she was sanctioned to teach at one point. Um, she, as a girl, spent a lot of time in a mental hospital, <clears throat> a lot of it in a locked room. I think she was there for maybe four years. Um, she later went on to develop, she's the sort of founder of DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which was the first of any therapies found to have any uh, success in dealing with people with uh, personality disorders, especially borderline personality. She, uh, she says when she was in the hospital suffering suicidal. She said, I was in hell, she said, and I made a vow. When I get out, I'm going to come back and help others out of here. And she did that. It's really pretty inspiring. So anyway, she said this, by refusing to accept the misery that is part of climbing out of hell, you fall back into hell. Turn towards the feeling rather than away from it. And that's towards the feeling with no label, with no expectation, with no judgment. I'm going to read uh, from <clears throat> good old Pema Children because she talks about this quite a bit and quite well. And this is from a book of hers called Living Beautifully with Uncertainty and Change. <clears throat> I think this section is the fundamental ambiguity of being human. 
So she talks about this whole thing of, of um, feeling pain directly. Talks about athletes who say there's that saying, feel the burn. You know, there was a, a bike racer, <clears throat> somebody in the, the Tour de France, uh, like Lance Armstrong. He's actually a teammate of Lance Armstrong's, and like Lance, turned out to be doping, and so was stripped of the title because he won, uh, won the Tour. Uh, and when he was racing, he had such damage to a hip. He was going to get the hip replaced, but he couldn't get it replaced before the season. So he had a choice. He could race with a hip that was actually bone on bone. All the cartilage was gone. The doctors told him, basically, it's wrecked already. You can't do it any more damage. So if you can live with the pain, go ahead. <clears throat> and he did. <laughs> he also used testosterone, but... Uh, nevertheless, it's just amazing that he could do that. He could just ride with one bone grinding on another and just eat the pain, so to speak. <clears throat> it's amazing what people can do. But uh, Pema says, I'm reminded of something that happened when my daredevil son was about 12 years old. We were standing on a tiny platform on the prow of a large ship kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in the movie Titanic. And I started to describe to him my fear of heights. I told him I wasn't sure I could stay there, that I was having all sorts of physical sensations and my legs were turning to mush. I'll never forget the look on his face when he said, Mom, that's exactly how I feel. The difference is that he loved the feeling. <laughs> All of my nieces and nephews are bungee jumpers and spelunkers and enjoy adventures that I avoid at any cost just because I have an aversion to the same feeling that gives them a thrill. <clears throat> you know, when Roshi got married to Angela, uh, she, with her psychological background, was able to point some things out to him. And one of was, which was what he felt as excitement was actually anxiety. The, 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 he was having all the symptoms of anxiety, but he's just built that that feels exciting and energizing. I'd like to have some of what he's drinking. <clears throat> she says, but there's an approach we can take to the fundamental ambiguity of being human. That is the uncertainty that we all live with, the fact that things can fall apart, can change at any moment. Certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death. An approach we can take that allows us to work with rather than retreat from feelings like fear and aversion. If we can get in touch with the sensation as sensation and open ourselves to it without labeling it good or bad, that even when we feel the urge to draw back, we can stay present and move forward into the feeling. <clears throat> she goes on, in My Stroke of Insight, that's the title of a book, the brain scientist Jill Bolte-Taylor talked about her recovery from a massive stroke. 
Taylor explains the physiological mechanisms behind emotion. An emotion like anger that's an automatic response lasts just 90 seconds from the moment it's triggered until it runs its course. Basically, the anger or whatever the emotion flares up and there's a chemical reaction and that's not going to dissipate no matter what you do for about 90 seconds. But one and a half minutes, that's all. When it lasts any longer, which it usually does, it's because we've chosen to rekindle it. The fact of the shifting, changing nature of our emotions is something we could take advantage of, but do we? No. Instead, when an emotion comes up, we fuel it with our thoughts, and what should last one and a half minutes may be drawn out for 10 or 20 years. people who don't speak to each other for the rest of their lives. Something's being nurtured there. (laughs) She says, we just keep recycling the storyline. We keep strengthening our old habits. Most of us have physical or mental conditions that have caused us distress in the past, and when we get a whiff of one coming, an incipient asthma attack, a symptom of chronic fatigue, a twinge of anxiety, we panic. Instead of relaxing with the feeling and letting it do its minute and a half while we're fully open and receptive to it, we say, oh no, oh no, here it is again. We refuse to feel the fundamental ambiguity when it comes in this form, so we do the thing that is most detrimental to us, we rev up our thoughts about it. What if this happens? What if that happens? all the other automatic negative thoughts. I'm no good. This is never going to end. We stir up a lot of mental activity. Body, speech, and mind become engaged in running away from the feeling, which only keeps it going and going and going. What you resist persists. She says, we can counter this response by training and being present. A woman who was familiar with Jill Bolte Taylor's observation about the duration of emotion sent me a letter describing what she does when an anxiety, when an uneasy feeling comes up. I just do the one and a half minute thing, she wrote. So that's a good practice instruction. When you contact groundlessness, one way to deal with that edgy, queasy feeling is to do the one-and-a-half-minute thing. Acknowledge the feeling. Give it your full, compassionate, even welcoming attention. And even if it's only for a few seconds, drop the storyline about the feeling. This allows you to have a direct experience of it, free of interpretation. Don't fuel it with concepts or opinions about whether it's good or bad. Just be present with the sensation. Where is it located in your body? Does it remain the same for very long? Does it shift and change? Just become interested in it. It's an opportunity. It's grist for the mill. Our Zen practice, our Zazen, helps us to do this. 
It's what we're learning to do. It helps us to notice and it helps us to respond. And the response is always turning into the pain. She says, ego or fixed identity doesn't just mean we have a fixed idea about ourselves. It also means that we have a fixed idea about everything we, pre we perceive. I have a fixed idea about you. You have a fixed idea about me. And once there is that feeling of separation, it gives rise to strong emotions. In Buddhism, strong emotions like anger, craving, pride, and jealousy are known as klesas. I guess in Tibetan practice it's kleshas. <clears throat> Same word as we use. Conf conflicting emotions that cloud the mind. I think sometimes they're just called vexations. The kleshas are our vehicle for escaping groundlessness, for not being willing, in other words, to rest in not knowing. And therefore, every time we give in to them, our pre-existing habits are reinforced. In Buddhism, going around and around, recycling the same patterns, is called samsara. That is ordinary life. And samsara equals pain. It's a saying in AA, if you keep running into the same wall, try turning right or turning left. Do something different. <clears throat> she goes on, we keep trying to get away from the fundamental ambiguity of being human and we can't. We can't escape from it any more than we can escape change, any more than we can escape death. The cause of our suffering is our reaction to the reality of no escape, ego clinging and all the trouble that stems from it, all the things that make it difficult for us to be comfortable in our own skin and get along with one another. Really the same thing as the Buddha said. The cause of suffering is ego attachment, grasping and aversion. Or as the third patriarch said, the great way is not difficult for those who do, who do not pick and choose or those who have no preferences. <clears throat> she says, if the way to deal with those feelings is to stay present with them without fueling the storyline, then it begs the question, how do we get in touch with the fundamental ambiguity of being human in the first place? In fact, it's not difficult because underlying uneasiness is usually present in our lives. It's pretty easy to recognize, but not so easy to interrupt. We may experience this uneasiness as anything from slight edginess to sheer terror. Anxiety makes us feel vulnerable, which we generally don't like. Vulnerability, <laughs> none of us except for Roshi, which we generally don't like. Vulnerability comes in many guises. We may feel off balance, as if we don't know what's going on, don't have a handle on things. We may feel lonely or depressed or angry. Most of us want to avoid emotions that make us feel vulnerable, so we'll do almost anything to get away from them. And that, that impulse to get away from those unpleasant feelings is what causes people to close off their lives. Um, a lot of being a grown-up is having difficult feelings, but remembering what it is you're there to do and moving ahead anyway. 
making a phone call that you don't want to make because you're nervous about how the conversation will go, getting out of bed when it seems like it's going to be hard, <clears throat> sitting down on the mat when you feel restless and anxious and don't feel like doing it. She says, if instead of thinking of these feelings as bad, we could think of them as road signs or barometers that tell us we're in touch with groundlessness, then we could see the feelings for what they are, the gateway to liberation, an open doorway to freedom from suffering, the path to our deepest well-being and joy. This is similar what, uh, to what a woman named Byron Katie says about uh, <clears throat> painful feeling. She calls it a compassionate alarm clock that's reminding us you're lost in the dream. Pema says, we have a choice. We can spend our whole lives suffering because we can't relax with how things really are, or we can relax and embrace the open-endedness of the human situation, which is fresh, unfixated, and unbiased. challenge is to notice the emotional tug of vexations when they arise and to stay with to stay with it whatever it is for one and a half minutes without the storyline can you do this once a day or many times throughout the day as the feeling arises this is the challenge this is the process of unmasking letting go opening the mind and heart We all of us have the ability to do this. The fact that we're practicing, the fact that we're doing zazen, that we're forging the habits of attention and the ability to let go of storylines and thoughts. Puts this right in our wheelhouse. This is what we're practicing to be able to do. Right up to the end. Roshi is fond of saying Zazen is practice for death. None of us <clears throat> are going to get out of this alive. We're all, as Bodhidharma said, anyone who has a body is an heir to suffering. All of us run into things that we don't want. Do we respond by thinking about them, especially with defeatist negative thoughts, <laughs> or do we suck it up? It's, it's a gradual process. Not going to get good at this overnight, but if you keep trying, you get better at it. It does change. It's another AA saying, slow change is good change. A lot of people come into Zen and the attraction is the promise, the possibility of coming to awakening, having some sort of insight, and, and that can happen. And that can be extremely powerful and helpful and redirecting our lives. But there isn't any sudden solution to our negative habit energies. 
we can have some insight, but they're still going to sneak in the back door. Uh, the only answer is, is gradual working on ourselves. <clears throat> Over time, with patience, hopefully with a sense of possibility, even enjoyment. It's a privilege to be able to do this. It's amazing that we can do something to make things better. So many people never get that chance, never encounter the Dharma, so to speak. And encountering the Dharma means not only do you hear about it, but you understand there's something there. Sometimes you can hear the same thing 20, 40, 100, 1,000 times, and it never catches on. It never You never take it in until one day the penny drops, and all of a sudden, whoa, why didn't you tell me that before? It's one of the reasons why teachers keep saying the same thing over and over again. Well, I think we've come to a good place to stop, so we will stop now and recite the four vows.